0: Well, it's so good to be with you again uh, this morning. I'm thrilled that Aaron gets to be on sabbatical. Uh, right now, our executive director in Indonesia, who's been with us for 11 years, uh, is on sabbatical, and it's a, it's a necessary thing. So many of those years have been incredibly difficult, uh, and she's been an incredible leader, uh, and we were committed to this break for her. Um, I was thinking about this uh, for Aaron's sake, uh, for your sake, um, just this last week, you know that, uh, that story in Exodus where, where the Israelites are, are fighting Amalek and Moses had to, to hold that rod up. And, and the story says that, that Aaron and Hur came up beside him and it's not just that they helped him hold that, hold that rod up or hold that staff up, it's that they did several things and they're practical. Uh, they gave Moses a place to sit. And that didn't just serve Moses, it actually served them because they had to help him hold that staff up. But just the fact that they let him sit probably allowed them to hold that staff in the crook of their arms instead of over their own heads. And so. Um, I know that uh, the idea of a sabbatical that uh, you know some of us work for companies that uh, provide such things and some of us never will and so it can feel a little bit in- incongruent uh, but I can say this as a pastor that it's a unique uh, weirdly configured burden that a pastor carries through the years and um, and the the emotional uh, effect and, and just the you um, the weight over time uh, just requires a break from time to time. There are days where the job just, you're sailing and the wind is at your back, and then there are seasons uh, that are just simply difficult. And you know how it goes, uh, all of our problems uh, are, are Aaron's problem, right? And sometimes we think it's his fault, right? So, uh, and so sometimes uh, that guy uh, needs needs a break, and so I'm, I'm very grateful. Compassion First serves pastors however we can. Uh, I'm a pastor myself, and um, if you were in church a couple of weeks ago, you got to hear Valerie Bellamy. I'll give a brief update this morning. Uh, Usually when we uh, sort of set up the one-two punch of myself and Valerie, I like to go first. I don't like to follow her. Um, it's It's a tough act to follow. Um, but with that, I, I brought some things with me. I'll just, just briefly update a couple of things. And my coworker, Emily, is out at a table and there's information. If you haven't heard of Compassion First, you can, um, you can get up to speed that way. There's a little uh, information card that you can take with you uh, or just leave there at the table. And then I brought a resource uh, this morning um, that you can take away if you like, and it's called Building Resilience for Families. Uh, resiliency is a, is a, um, a core uh, piece of the care that we provide for girls in aftercare. This used to say uh, resilience for families through COVID, and, but we're tired of COVID. So we just uh, said resilience for families uh, just in general. And so uh, feel free to take those as many as you want. And I wanna say, um, I love walking up and seeing the sign that says it's okay to not be okay. I know it's been there for a while. I know you probably walk up and say, shouldn't we get a new slogan pretty soon? Uh, We might be okay by now, you know? (laughs) But I love that it says that because, I mean, stuff has not been okay. I mean, everything is not okay. And you know, in March when I came home from Indonesia, um, with the realization that I would not see about 90% of my staff for some time, I had an emotional timestamp in my heart that expired at one year. You know, we're going on 15 or 16 months now. And, and I know that it does seem like things are wrapping up here in terms of this virus. It is not over there. Our cemetery is a black zone. We've never seen a black zone yet. We've seen red zones. Um, all of the news you hear about India being on fire, uh, Indonesia sort of sits in the shadow of India where the news is concerned, it's on fire. Valerie is headed to Indonesia. We, we're holding that loosely, whether she will actually be able to get on a plane here in two weeks. And um, and so and we're emotionally trying to prepare for not seeing 70 people who we love very much for maybe over two years. And they're carrying on. Uh, we kept COVID out for a good season of time, but then it came through the shelters like a forest fire. Uh, we have death all around us. Um, we're getting every week news of somebody dying, and uh, in fact, if you've been here when I've spoken before, i probably talked about Manar, who is our hero of the cemetery. Um, she's the first in so many ways. She's the first to leave prostitution in the cemetery. She's, her daughter was the first to go to school on an education sponsorship. That daughter is the first girl from the cemetery to go to college she's the first to engage in entrepreneurship programs she's a hero in so many ways and she's in her early 30s and last week died of a heart attack leaves four children behind three of them uh, school age or younger and and these sort of blows i mean this is real life i mean your church is going through this right you don't this is just life from the free shelf right and and at some times it's just too much and and it's in those I, I, I raise my hands in worship, uh, you know, through the declaration of what I believe. Because sometimes you're stripped down to just, I still believe this. And and it's an interesting thing because you know we talk about death, and and the death of Lazarus, and that story is so rich. I'm going to get off track right now, so we'll be here till about one. Um, <laughs> The death of Lazarus and the interaction with Martha. You know, we're hard on Martha. I like Martha because she said the honest thing. Jesus, if you'd have just shown up, because sometimes it feels like he doesn't show up. And here's the thing is we look at her and say, well, is that a lack of faith? Not at all. She believed if Jesus would have showed up, Lazarus wouldn't have been dead. That's faith. You can have a moment where you're not trusting Jesus or you can't figure out what he's doing or you're disagreeing with him. But it is not a lack of faith. It's actually a bolstering of faith. It just doesn't feel good, right? And, and here's the thing. Here's what's interesting about Martha. And when somebody dies, all of the, all of the tried answers, you know, he or she's in a better place and things like that. I know that. The point is they're not here. That's the point. That's what Martha was saying. She's like, I know. I know we'll all get resurrected. She said the spiritually right thing. I got it. I know that in the end we'll all be resurrected. And Jesus spoke to her and said, no, now. I'm here now. I'm here right now. This morning. And um, can we just, can you just show a couple pictures of Menar pretty quick? I just want to, I want to honor her. This beautiful woman. This, this. The first one to get saved in the cemetery. This has been an environment here with you, there in the Yellow Flower, in our aftercare centers, where part of my experience with Compassion First is just simply being Pastor Mike. And I'm grateful to be an ordained minister alongside Aaron. Um, uh, we started this anti-trafficking work in Indonesia, and it has us bellied up to a lot of tables. There's the broader NGO world, there's the anti-trafficking community, there's that which gets dumped bag in, into the big bag of uh, what we understand to be justice causes. And then our, there are our church circles. And, and I did not know going into this that in Indonesia, I would never be known as anything other than Pastor Mike. Our team calls me Pastor Mike, everybody calls government officials, call me Pastor Mike. And all of our survivors, they call us Pastor Mike. We interact with Christians, Muslims, Hindus. They all call me Pastor Mike. It's the honor of my life. The job of a pastor, in the simplest of terms, is to love and care for a group of people and for the broader community. And I think it's as simple as that. And I wanna make the case for love above all things. To the degree that we get to communicate to those that are outside of our flock as pastors, we get to tell the message of unfailing love, and, and, and we pray that we actually demonstrate it in our lives. There are a lot of things that our jobs are not. Our jobs are not to project that we are perfect or superhuman. Aaron needs a break. I think some expect that we should be political. Um, as that climate gets more confusing, i become even more convinced that our core responsibilities are love. Even while we're commissioned to encourage God's best in love, our job is not to communicate moralism that has us suggesting that we're better than others because of our belief or because of our faith. Our job, the broader job of Christians, is to love. And it's as simple and sounds foolish, but love sorts things out. It fixes things. It motivates right things. And and that may sound perfectly vanilla and neutral, but I'm, I'm here to say that it's not. It is a powerful, catalytic change agent. It changes everything. And we understand it in so many aspects of life. We understand it in marriage. A marriage without love becomes a dead marriage. We understand it in parenting. None of us are great at either of those things, by the way. Parenting at its best is a make it up as you go proposition. I think marriage is too. We understand that a nurtured child has an overwhelming potential for health and that an unnurtured child has an overwhelming potential for severe dysfunction that will cost them and society both a lot. We understand that in part a lack of nurture is a gigantic perpetuator of cyclical poverty. That talent and human potential and gifts for this world lie in the ruins of poverty, unnurtured, undeveloped, unrealized, unharvested. For me, I had to get married to, to understand love. That makes sense, right? But I mean it this way to say, until I was married, I don't think I understood grace. Um, I was without meaning to be a reform yourself believer. It's stoicism, do more, try harder, get better, you know, and we can all get there, right, without meaning to trying and failing to change myself for Jesus. And I've discovered through marriage, uh, grace and covering, and the difference between the reform yourself Jesus, which is not a biblical Jesus, and the transformational Jesus, who changes me through his love. And I trample all over the biblical metaphor of marriage, but hopefully with care. I hope everybody's experience is growing in terms of marriage, those that are married. Um, I hate it when pastors brag on their marriage like this. This is how they brag. She's been putting up with me for 35 years. That is not like an honest street level statement. That's that's just, that's just, um, uh, I'm gonna say something that you're gonna erase later, please, you know, I'm going to lunch with my black belt instructor uh, who lives in Newburgh here. I know I don't look like a black belt, but black belt's in the heart, you know what I'm saying? And, and, I just want to punch that guy in the face <laughs> 35 years she's been you know I'm so great here's a, here's the thing like a bunch of years ago I came home from work and my wife had watched Oprah that day and I missed it so she debriefed me <laughs> Oprah had done an hour special on trafficking and Kimmer sat me down she knew what was going on in my heart about the poor And she said, this is happening in the world. I said, that's terrible. She said, it's happening to children by volume. I said, then that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And she said, then I think you're supposed to do something about it. That started compassion first. We never looked back. And here's the thing, I knew she believed in me. Powerful, it's powerful. See, there's so many things we know about love. First Corinthians 13 is so beautiful. We have this list of things that it does and doesn't do. When I examine the list, there's a lot of things that I don't do. Love is patient. Why did we have to start there? <laughs> and you have this argument that Paul's trying to settle, where people say, well, we should be co- proclaimers. If you don't preach, then you're nothing. And we should have doers. If you aren't doing something, you know, then, then you're, you're not a Christian. You're not, you're not doing anything. Should we, should we focus on being more spiritual? Should we just preach more? Or, or should we lay down our lives for the poor? And Paul's answer is simple both in love, but if not in love, just stop doing either. Stop with both if not in love. Love does and doesn't do things, it doesn't quit. It never fails, it speaks the truth, and it changes us. And when I'm changed, I'm better, effectively empowered because I know somebody loves me. If we can turn to Mark chapter two this morning, I love how Mark handles this particular story starting in verse one. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. And while he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They could bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head and then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there only thought to themselves, what's he saying, this is blasphemy. And Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. And so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to stand up, pick up your mat and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home, and then he jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers, and they were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. I thought a lot about the four guys who carried this crippled guy and lowered him through the roof. These guys are actually on my top 10 list of people to meet in heaven when we cross the threshold. And I think we all have people we want to meet. I want to meet these guys. Just the fact that four guys picked up a friend by the corners of a mat and made this effort. Four guys agreeing together that they're going to do something. Imagine how they felt about this friend of theirs and what they wouldn't do to see him well. And just the the fact that they picked him up, right? Carrying a human is hard. We did this relay at camp in high school, the human baton. And, and I was on the misfit team that had no athletes, no, um, just, uh, you know, and then, and we weren't, I guess, say we, we weren't sitting at the cool kids table. And, and there was a cool kids table team and they, they were athletic and big and strong and good looking and we hated them and, you know, the, and they were just crushing every competition at camp. But then we had this human baton relay, right, where they set up this course around the camp and things to go over and under and through the pool and over fences, and your baton was a human. Well, we had this 98-pound wrestler who was just stiff as a board, wiry kid, and we thought, we can carry this guy because he's carryable. And And I remember, you know, we're cruising through this relay. We figured out how to carry him, and... You know, we're over the fence, dump him in the pool, you drag him across the pool, over the other side of the fence. And the last obstacle was to sort of shimmy him over the ping pong table without touching the table, right? Couldn't touch the table. Well, we were coming on to the team of the cool kids and they were trying to get their guy over the table. And when we came right up on it, this is a, like the greatest leadership moment of my life. We stopped and I said, don't stop, let's go over the top of them, And so we were getting our guy over the top like this, and and I said, now stop, and we're right over the top of him. I said, drop him. And we dropped our baton on their baton, their baton hit the table, they got penalized. We picked our guy up and ran (laughs) off to. I've thought a lot about these four guys. I think more about them than even the guy that was healed. I think they get lost in the story. I've thought about it because their experience is a microcosm of what it is to uh, start up an NGO and do anti-trafficking work. You're picking up something that's hard to carry and walking it towards the impossible. The possibility of failure is really high. Your motivation must be love because you have to be willing to fail. And you can assign a lot of motivations to what these men were doing, but love never fails. And spoken in terms of love, I want to just say five things this morning. And the first is this, love takes personally the estate of another. I argue that this is the Holy Spirit in us, this giant conviction that we have for the sake of humanity, the idea that when somebody suffers, we suffer, that violence against a girl is a violence against humanity and therefore violence against me. Even though I don't personally experience it, That's biblical compassion. Biblical compassion always bears solution. In John 6, when Jesus said, I have compassion on these people, what flowed after that was the feeding of the 5,000. But it started with him saying, I have compassion on these people. We don't always have the answers, but biblical compassion says it's worth trying to find an answer. People will come to me in support of our work and say, I'm just so behind you. And so many times, it's followed by this, because I have daughters. You know, and people come say, because I have sons, I wanna raise good men. But because I have daughters, we take it personal. Most of us have daughters. It's an an atrocity against a girl, and it makes us think about our own girls, right? And, And it reminds us that it's an individual, that it's a person, and we're stuck in our own humanity and our own frailty and moved with compassion when we think about our own kids. Love takes personally the estate of of another. I take that personally. And secondly, it takes it personally, but then love lives with this absolute belief that you can get to solution even when it's foolish and impossible. This absolute belief that we can do something. Seeing the need and, and trying to see a solution and in doing so, committing to whatever it takes to get it done. An intrinsic motivation that says there must be something that we can do. A lot of years ago, uh, after college, I was, uh, I was really wrestling with what to do. I'd gone to Bible college I didn't know what direction to go from there really. And for about 10 minutes, I thought I want to be a doctor. Uh, we should all be glad that that didn't happen. It would have been bad for everybody. But I, I, did, I, I went out to Eastern Montana to shadow a friend who was a surgeon for about a week. And I just stood in and watched a lot of surgeries. And, and it was a really cool experience. And um, I learned a lot, my eyes were opened about a lot of things. And I remember this one situation where a very frail old woman who had a stoma installed and she was near the end uh, and there had been an infection that had come up around the stoma. I hope I'm using the right term. I never got to medical school, so. Um, and they had to remediate this infection, but she was too frail for uh, anesthesia. It would have killed her. And so it was a very painful uh, surgery and she was kind of half there. and. And I remember following the surgeon out to talk to the husband uh, afterwards, and he said, well, this is how it went, and this is what you can expect, and so on. And this husband said, thank you so much, doctor. We're gonna get her home. We're gonna get some weight back on her, we're gonna get her back on her feet. She was not going home. She had five or six days left, at the most. But this guy believed she was going home. And I have to tell you, Foolish, but I like his disposition, right? I want to believe that way. No, we're going to get her home. We're going to get some weight back on her. We're going, to, we're going to get her back on her feet. How many people do we all know that have come to Jesus just because somebody pestered them to church, right? Hey, come to church with me. Come to church with me. Come to church with me. And it was finally understood as love, right? because someone was consistently kind to them and just just knew that the kindness at some point would take purchase, and just believed. And because they they knew and felt love from someone that seemed otherworldly, seemed to be sourced in something else, that they came to know Christ. It's the same sentiment that suggests there must be something we can do and when it comes to the big things like social ills uh, that seem so much larger than us, and what in the world could I possibly do? We bring a part that plays a part. And, and that's the thing that it might seem very unsatisfying, but think of it this way. We, we all give to this place, to the church, none of, but none of us carries the whole ticket. We all give to charities, but none of us is responsible for the whole budget. We're just responsible to engage what we can engage. It's interesting in Isaiah 58, where Jesus, or where where Isaiah just chastises Israel for their religious pageantry, but their neglect of the poor. And if you study it out, you realize that it says, it doesn't say to solve anybody's problems. It just says to help. And it doesn't say to, to, pay off anybody's mortgage. It just says to share, to share and to help. That's what we get to do. We get to share and to help. The thing is, these guys got this guy to Jesus' feet. They didn't heal him. Jesus healed him. It's not our job to solve people's problems. It's our job to be available in love to help. When we solve people's problems, we rob them of their dignity. I was with a friend, Rawan, and some pastors in Sri Lanka, including the general supervisor of the Four Square Church. This was a year after the, the Christmas Day quake and tsunami, and we were touring um, places that they had rebuilt along the northeast coast of Sri Lanka. And that was an amazing place to see because the Civil War was entrenched at the time. So we'd go into these villages and there'd be no men because they'd all been conscripted into war. And we came upon this little village and, you know, kind of a, a tent community and, and uh, we saw this mom holding this, I guess she was about a ten-year-old girl, but she looked like she was maybe six, really small. And her whole leg looked like the outside of a, of a burnt marshmallow. She'd suffered a severe burn and it was blackened and charred, so a recent injury. And we're talking to this family, my friend Rowan, who's a resourced man, he has gem mines and tea estates, and, and neat guy, he, I, if, I, if you can think of Sully from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Dune, that's Rowan, he's this jolly and, you know, big guy. And we're talking and rawan just kind of starts kicking the dirt. And then finally he interrupts everybody and he turns to this general supervisor. He says, Pastor, we have to do something. They they toppled over a lamp at night and their tent caught on fire. And she caught on fire. And as they're talking about how to get her to help, she starts sobbing. Because they had taken her to a doctor and because she was in so much pain, she couldn't sit still and the doctors scolded her. And so she knew if she's going back to the doctor that that it would be more pain. And they I checked in with Rawan some months later and I said, What did you do for that girl? And he said, We helped her out significantly. Love does these things. It it imbues our heart with conviction. It believes that solutions are available, that it's possible. The third thing this morning, if I could, is that love sees the person that you're helping as unquestionably worth it. Second Corinthians 5.14 says, either way, Christ's love controls us. That, that word is um, comport, compel. You know, when somebody is testifying before Cong- Congress and they say, I'm compelled to be here, it kind of means they had no choice. Comport is an internal pressurized change. Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised from. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. I'm changed. It changes the way I see people. The fact is, is that Jesus has changed me, that love changes me, it makes us different. And if I'm different, I see every other person differently. You wanna get the judgment to evaporate out of your heart? Intentionally love Jesus. Because you'll start to intentionally love other people. Seeing everybody, our interpretation of other people, even those who we might deem our enemies or people we just completely don't understand, which is a cultural norm right now. Seeing everybody according to their full potential in Christ. See, where we get lost is when we start seeing people as unredeemable and writing them off. That is not a Christ-centered value. We had an Emily Thompson rule in high school or when I was a youth pastor because she said something in a devotional one time as she was a student. She said something in a devotional one time to encourage her fellow students. Every single human being is worth the love of God. Everyone is worth whatever intervention is necessary. And she said, let's treat people according to their full potential in Christ, even if they don't know Jesus. These guys looked at their friend and decided he was worth it. It was worth the risk of not getting in. It was worth the risk of failure. It was worth the risk of being wrong. That we're gonna get this guy to the feet of Jesus. I have a friend uh, who is a board member for Compassion First. He's historically been our largest donor. Years ago, we sat in a coffee shop and he thought I should be pastoring a church. That's to this day, he thinks I should be pastoring a church. And he said, I think that's what you're supposed to do. He said, but I know you need to do this compassion first thing. You need to do it. And he he handed me our first large check, and it was $15,000. And he handed it to me, and he said, Mike, it's okay if it fails. I cannot tell you the freedom that he gave me when he released that gift and said, you have to do this. It's okay if it fails. Fourthly, I say this morning that love sees barriers as doorways. You know, you have to consider the environmental factors of this story. I, I think that we get um, a little bit seduced by the the watercolor paintings in children's Bibles, you know, that this picture is, it's a peaceful, uh, clear sky, starry-lit night, right? and and you've got this adobe colored building and everybody's just sitting there peacefully a few people on the outside of the building right Uh, this was a packed house you can imagine that the windows had people packed around them so they could see i'm guessing that it's one of these places with an exterior staircase up to the roof and probably that staircase is also packed and so four guys carrying a fifth guy is a lot of space displacement. And to get him up to the roof would not have been an easy task. Right, what are you doing? Well, we're just gonna go up and tear a hole in the roof, you know, and that announcement probably, you know, we need to get through this crowd. So so you think about it, for them to get this guy upstairs through people, they probably had to lift him up over their head, exposing their own torsos, probably taken some bruises on. There are people in the way, there's a barrier that is a roof, we're gonna get bruised but we see daylight. This idea is so important in our work because everything in this world is set up to make groups like ours quit. Working in developing world environments is hard. Crime reigns, corruption reigns, cultural barriers persist. Those that we serve deserve to have us break through those barriers. I was talking to an economic officer in the Surabaya consulate a couple weeks ago. I was telling this officer how important the U.S. government was to our story several years back in 2011, 2012. We needed some help from the U.S. government. And there's a lot of things that the U.S. government cannot do in somebody else's country. But there are little things that they can do. And those little things that they did gave us pinpricks of daylight through some very hard situations. And those pinpricks of daylight were all we needed to keep walking towards the light. And, and through a couple of hard years there, we finally broke out into smoother operations. The most important thing I would say, more important than anything, is that we had staff who were like these four men, who said, we see the smallest bit of daylight and we're just going to keep walking towards it. We have things right now, we all do, that are cultural barriers. In some cases, and we've watched it for the last year, we've watched things that don't need to be barriers, be barriers. We've encamped ourselves in different corners. We've declared new enemies. We've done so in the name of faith. We've done so in the name of rights. Sometimes we've confused our biblical Christianity with our American Christianity. Here's the thing, the Bible guarantees us no rights. The Constitution does, but the Constitution is not a biblical document. And and I've said to some, maybe you think it's a better document than the Bible. It may be, I don't think so. But the Bible only guarantees us hardship. In fact, it says, All men will hate you because of me. We have an obligation to that passage, by the way, to make sure that it's actually Jesus that people are hating and not us. Right? It doesn't say, All men will hate you because of your bad behavior and it's okay. It's because it might be an actual hatred for Christ. I don't. I don't think that we've crossed that threshold yet. I think most people still think Jesus himself is a good idea. They become confused sometimes when they bump up against the culture of the church. and Not all church people, not, certainly not any of us. But here's the thing. It takes a mature Christian to say, I'm not going to let that be a barrier between us. That takes a mature Christian. We have faced, in the last year, a lot of cloak and tunic issues. You need my cloak, here's my tunic also. We have watched a lot of Christians say, you cannot have my cloak, you cannot have my tunic, I'm done talking to you, am I right? we have been given the opportunity to minister through cloak and tunic issues. I'll give you another biblical illustration. Jesus saying, I'll wash your feet. Foot washing, we've turned it into a sacrament. But when Jesus, in Jesus' time, it was a public health issue. And because it was a public health issue, just the servants did it. It wasn't a safe thing for Just anybody. And you watch Jesus say, no, no, no. I'm wrapping this towel around. I'm washing the feet. And we have to ask the question and look in the mirror just a little to say, in the last 15 months, has the evangelical church washed the feet of our culture? Or has the evangelical church said, don't tread on me? The last is this. Love is willing to solve problems, even with ill-fitting tools. In the case of this man and his friends, the tools were probably these, their bare hands. It's what they had. They had their bare hands. These guys didn't have a truck box, you know, with a lot of supplies in the back of the Chevy. Sometimes your bare hands are all you have. In other words, your will. I gotta tell you something, when it comes down to my will, I'm not super confident, but God gave us our will, which means whoever you're serving or whatever you're serving is actually getting the greatest gift God has ever given you. On Wednesday, I'm gonna bury my mentor. Her name is Jean Lowry. Oh, she taught me a lot. One day she asked me, Mike, what is your greatest gift? I don't like that question. I thought she was asking me a spiritual gifts question. Have you done a spiritual gifts test? What's your gift? I mean, how do you answer that? It's wisdom, you know, it just sounds terrible, right? You know, well, I really think I'm a healer. <laughs> no, you're not. Jesus is, you know. <laughs> how do you answer that? I don't know. She said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Everybody's greatest gift is the same thing. God gave you your will. That is the greatest gift that he gave us. Our free will. Gets us into a lot of trouble. But then we run up against a scripture that uses the word metanoia, change your mind. Repentance, change your mind and your heart will follow and then your actions change. And the Bible says out of the overflow of your heart, your changed heart, your mouth will speak. A changed heart has to testify about the love of Christ. It's, it's un, there's a great illustration. We're talking about the poor this morning, the global poor. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. After the subject of love, do you know what God talks about more than anything? Poor poor and oppressed. More than 2,000 references in scripture. You want to get close to God, figure out how to get close to the poor. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. God does not shut up about it over and over and over again. The greatest gift that God has given us is our will, our engaged will. I try to have this conversation with my two-year-old pit bull Uncle Bud after he's eaten the 20th TV remote, you know? So you don't have to do this. You look at these four men, they decided their friend was worth it. They were willing to risk looking foolish. They're gonna see it through and get him to the feet of Jesus. And these are the things that are consistent with love because it takes things personally. It takes mercy personally. It takes the suffering of another personally. I want to just stand behind you or beside you this morning as a church. I want to say that our Compassion First family is going through the kind of losses that you're experiencing right now and we have Martha-like questions. And this, I wanna say it with this encouragement. You know, when Jesus went and visited Martha and then Mary raised Lazarus from the dead, that was the beginning of the end for him. That, that followed into the Holy Week. And these were a sequence of very, very bad days for Jesus. And we actually in John we see his humanity just come to the surface in a, in a manner that we don't see previously the book of John over half of the book is the last two weeks very focused very concentrated so you have Jesus just showing up really human in a few instances you know you have this famous entry and he was famous that day he was Instagram famous because he raised Lazarus from the dead I love that the Pharisees, their the solution to Lazarus being raised from the dead was to kill him. I'm thinking he doesn't, he's not afraid of death anymore, you know? It's not illogical. But Jesus comes in on this entry and then he destroys the tables in the temple, which is a, that was a bad day. Right? And we can say, well, that was an act of justice. He was also really grumpy. We know he was grumpy. In two of the accounts, he yells at a tree and it dies and you can't make a teaching out of it. The tree was not in season for fruit and he yelled at it for not having fruit. I think the creator of the universe knew that. And you knew that his friends knew it was a touchy situation because in one of the accounts, they walk back by the tree the next day and they kind of elbow him and say, there's your favorite tree. See what happens when you yell at things, Jesus? He showed us his humanity. We're living in just street level humanity right now street level and we believe in an incarnational savior that walks straight onto that street right into the middle of us in the manner that he walked onto a disciples boat in the manner that he walked into the middle of a cave when this guy had received all the solutions anybody knew This street-level pedestrian Jesus that we pray to who taught us pedestrian prayers and said speak your mind and and use my name that's like going to the hardware store and saying, yeah, Bubba told me to come here. You'd do me well. So we come, Father, before you, even now this morning, in desperate need of the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that our hearts would be ministered and tended to, even in loss and disappointment. And I, as we pray, I want to speak this prophetic word that everybody in this room and everybody we represent, everybody connected to us is unquestionably worth it. And may we walk that out in spirit and in truth, that knowledge, that the worthiness of the cross and what the, the price that you paid, that it is represented in every single individual, even if just that individual was the only one to say yes to the promise of the cross, that Jesus, you would have still gone you know every name and every story in this room this morning you know every disappointment and every corner of our heart that even has us doubting you and you still walk in so walk in now the full power of the holy spirit all of your healing all of your love all of your mysterious touch that we don't understand we thank you this morning in jesus name amen